the church today is all about me and what I can get. We've lost the vision of the grandeur and greatness of God, of the reality that when we gather together, the focus of our time is not about us, but rather it's about God. It's about worship. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part eight of The Heart of Worship. Tom is taking us through what God's Word defines as true and authentic biblical worship. Friend, have you ever had times when reading the scripture left you dry or bored, maybe even questioning its relevance to you? What about during worship? Are you disengaged? Have you wondered why? Well, as we've been learning throughout this series, the problem isn't with God's Word or with His self-revelation. Nope, it's you. And as you'll discover today, a proper response in worship has everything to do with a proper understanding of the glory of God. Because worship is, at its core, a response to God's glory. And when you come to see the supreme and complete majesty of God, your response will be to worship Him. Let's join Tom Pennington right now to learn more on The Word Unleashed. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs he had commanded him to do. So Moses, unwilling or feeling unable to speak for God, gains Aaron as his helper. And Aaron comes to meet Moses, and Moses debriefs him with all that happened at the burning bush. He explains the encounter he had with God. He explains the divine mission that they're going to be sent on. And oh, by the way, Aaron, I ask God to send you with me. And he describes all of the reality that is God. Then, verse 29, they leave the wilderness where Aaron had met Moses, And they go into Egypt, and Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. So they go into Egypt now. They assembled the key leaders of the nation. And verse 30 says, And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He lays out to the people everything that he now knows that he learned from Moses, that Moses had learned from God. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Now notice what happens in verse 31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that they had seen that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. You notice the order here? When these people under the the heel of Pharaoh in Egypt came to understand that God the God of their fathers truly loved them in spite of where they found themselves, that this was his doing, that he had a purpose, and that he saw their concern, that he saw their affliction, that he saw their trouble, that he loved them in the midst of that, in the midst of their darkest trial, when they saw God in his compassion and in his kindness, how did they respond? They bowed low and worshiped. You see, they 
there in Egypt after 400 years, this new generation had come to doubt the God of Israel. And when they saw him, as it were, through the words of Aaron, through the words of Moses, they had to respond to such compassion and such love. And they worshiped. Worship is a response. Still in the book of Exodus, turn over to Exodus 33. You see this yet again. Exodus 33, verses 1 through 11, describes the reality of what happened in the wilderness and specifically how God was with them. But I want you to notice specifically verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, understand, God was giving the children of Israel a picture. God is infinite in his existence. He is not bound by space or time. He is everywhere present all of the time. But to show his people Israel that he cared for them, that he was with them, They all were in the wilderness living in tents. And so God had a tent. It was to show them that he was there, that he was present, that he was going through this with them. God had a tent. Verse 8 says, And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. You know that great visible manifestation of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, this ineffable brightness, eye-shattering brightness would stand at at the front of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Here you have the children of Israel. When they saw the visible display of the glory of God, what did they do? They worshiped. It was a response to God and to his greatness. Turn over one chapter to Exodus 34. You remember that Moses had asked God to do two things. He said, God, I want you to show me your glory. Show me a visible display of your greatness. And I want you to tell me about your ways, that is, your predictable patterns of behavior. Tell me how you act. And so God agrees to do both. In verse 4, we find of chapter 34, that Moses cut out two stone tablets like the former ones that he had broken, you remember, at the scene of the golden calf. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took the two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. Here is that visible display that Moses had asked for. God said, look, I can't let you see my front parts because that would be too much for you you'd be incinerated and so I'll just let you see my back as it were and so Moses sees some sort of visible display which isn't described here for us and then God proclaims his name that is he tells Moses what he's like let me tell you Moses my ways let me tell you what I'm like let me tell you my predictable patterns of behavior I am Yahweh, the eternal, existent one. He is. I am the Lord God Almighty. 
I am compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. I don't leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Moses made haste, therefore, to bow low toward the earth and to worship. Moses saw the glory of God, and he heard about the glory of God and his character, and how did he respond? He worshiped. He worshiped. There are many other examples I could give you in between, but in the interest of time, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Here, Solomon has dedicated the temple, this new grand building that he has overseen the construction of. Place now, instead of a tent, God resides among his people in a house, as it were. It's his address to let them know that he is in the middle of the people, that he dwells in the nation. Verse 1 of Second Chronicles 7, Now when Solomon had finished praying, that great prayer that's recorded for us, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. Now think about this, folks. Don't just read those words. This happened. Imagine standing there that day, and as Solomon finishes praying, fire literally drops down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The bright, shining glory of God visibly manifested itself in that place. The priest couldn't even enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and seeing the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped. And they gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. There was nothing else to do. There was no other response but seeing God in his greatness and in his glory, but to worship. We come to the New Testament. We see the same thing true in the life and ministry of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 14, you remember the familiar story of Jesus walking on the water. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, you remember the story. Jesus sends the disciples out on the lake. He goes to the mountain to pray, and during the fourth watch of the night, we're told, he comes down and he walks to them on the surface of the water. An incredible miracle demonstrating his power over his creation. When the disciples, verse 26, saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And then you remember Peter asked to come. We give Peter a hard time, but Peter here shows a great deal of faith and confidence in his Lord. He's the only one out of the boat, by the way. And he gets out of the boat, and at the Lord's bidding, he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Verse 30, but he begins to look around. Seeing the wind, he became frightened and started to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, You have little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. They saw Jesus Christ walking across the surface of the water, They saw him call Peter and enable him to walk across the surface of the water. They saw him rescue Peter, and they 
Saul, once he got into the boat, that great storm calmed. That wind there in the Sea of Galilee that can create a vortex of sorts just went away, hushed to nothing. And they worshiped, seeing the greatness of Jesus Christ. You see it again at the end of Matthew's gospel. We read it last Sunday morning in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, in Matthew 28, verse 8, the women leave the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report the resurrection to his disciples. Verse 9, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What response do you think seeing the glorified Christ would bring? What response seeing the resurrected Lord would bring? There's only one response, and it's worship. When you turn to the scene in heaven, the same thing is true. In Revelation chapter 5, a passage that I hope to look at a little more in a couple of weeks, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, you have this majestic scene of all of these myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of people and angels and living creatures, and they're worshiping, verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders, that's representative of us, fell down and worshiped. Imagine this incredible scene stretched out across heaven and the brilliant glory of heaven more than can be counted people are crying out worship to Christ worship to God how do you respond to that with more worship they fell down and worshiped it was a response to God now if you're like me you're sitting there thinking you know if I ever had the chance to see God in his glory, of course I would respond like they responded. Of course I would fall down and worship. But we don't have that opportunity. Let me turn you to one other passage that I skipped. Turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, because here's a circumstance much more like ours. Nehemiah chapter 8. And again, in a few weeks, this will be a passage I'll come back to, but let me just briefly walk you through it. Nehemiah chapter 8, this is after one of the returns from Babylonian captivity with Ezra, and all the people gathered, verse 1 says, as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. So they're back in Jerusalem. They ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square from early morning until midday. He read the Bible to the people for hours. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Verse 5, he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. This, by the way, is part of the reason we stand when we read the Scripture together. 
out of respect for the word of God and in keeping with how they worship. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now here, there is no visible display of the glory of God that drove these people to worship, but it's the same worship. Why? Because they had come to see God, not in some great visible display, but in his word revealed here and it drove them as they saw him with the mind's eye it drove them to the same kind of worship as those who saw him visibly you see it again in chapter 9 nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1 now on the 24th day of this month the sons of israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. In this case, folks, it was not some grand visible display of God's glory. It was the display of God's glory contained in the book. This is like us. This is what's supposed to drive us to worship. We are to respond to the glory of God as he has revealed himself in the book. But our response is supposed to be absolutely the same as if we saw him in that grand visible display that Moses did. Now those are just a few examples. But I can tell you this that no matter where you look in Scripture, you will find that true worship is always, always, always a response to who God is. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it like this, genuine worship is not something that is self-generated or can be worked up within ourselves. It must rather be the outpouring of our hearts in response to a realization of who God is. See, the main thing to understand about worship is that it is theocentric. It is God-centered. Worship is our reasonable response to a glimpse of the glory of the infinite being who is God. G.W. Bromley writes, Human emotions and reactions are involved in worship. The point is, however, that these are not the controlling factors. They do not constitute the true essence of worship. In the Bible, the beginning lies in the object of worship rather than the subject. The object of worship is not a projection of man. It is God. Listen to how Bromley goes on. It is this God whose person and acts are both the theme and formative principle of genuine worship. If there is awe in worship, it is awe of God. If there is love, it is love of God. If there is praise, it is the praise of God. If worship is response, it is the response of man to the living God who has made himself known to man in his word and in his works. It was in God's providence that earlier this week, I was teaching my girls as we do in the mornings, and I was going through the life of Christ, and I have been for a while. I'm not only slow with you, I'm slow with them. And I I finally made it to the first miracle, the miracle in Cana of Galilee, you know, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And I made the point with them that C.S. Lewis uh, made so well, I thought, and that is that when God acts normally, that is when he acts in the world to perform his will, 
He does it with his hand in the glove. You can't really see that it's God working. A miracle, however, is when God pulls his hand out of the glove and allows you to see that it's actually him. That's what Jesus did at the wedding. Jesus turned water into wine. I made the comment to my girls that Jesus does that every day. Water falls from the sky in the form of rain, and it goes down into the ground, and it's absorbed in the roots of that vine, absorbed up through the system God created, and eventually finds its way into those developing grapes. And then someday those grapes are plucked, and the juice in them is crushed out, and through a natural process of fermentation, that water turns eventually into wine. The miracle at Cana was just Jesus taking his hand out of the glove and letting everybody see that he, in fact, is the sovereign over nature, over creation. And as I thought about worship this week, I found myself asking, why do so many churches today not seem to care about worship? Why do so many Christians not seem to care? Why are the services of the church built around people and their desires and their likes and their felt needs instead of around God? And as I thought about it and I studied this week, it became obvious that there are really only two reasons. It's either because they don't know the true God, which is true in some cases, or they don't have a true and accurate and biblical perspective of who God is. Because as Luther said, to know God is to worship God. R.C. Sproul tells the story that some 25 years ago, a young seminary graduate was planning to plant a church in the suburbs of Chicago. This seminary student decided before he started the church to survey the people that lived in his area to, dis- to find out what they liked about church and what they didn't like. When he was done with his survey, he shared the results with R.C. Sproul. And this young pastor's name, by the way, was Bill Hybels. And on the survey of what people didn't like about church, reason number one was it's boring. Reason number two, it's irrelevant. So Bill Hybels then took that as his mantra, and he set out to do everything within his power to make his church both interesting and relevant. I thought R.C. Sproul's response to Bill Hybels some 25 years ago, before he did what he did, was very insightful. This is what Sproul said. He said, you know, Bill, throughout the Bible, we read about people who encountered the living God. And there are a variety of reactions. We've seen them this morning. Some fall down like dead men. Some are overwhelmed like Isaiah with a sense of personal guilt. Others are overcome with joy. But Sproul said, never did anyone meet God and walk away and say, well, that was boring. Never once did they say, that was an irrelevant experience. Now today, folks, God reveals himself not through visible appearances, but primarily through his word. Whenever his word is taught, whenever you read the Bible, whenever you hear it taught, God is revealing himself, just like in Ezra's time. It's happening here today in spite of me and my weaknesses as a teacher. And if you find yourself bored with Scripture and thinking, that's irrelevant, Understand that the problem is not with God and with his revelation of himself. It's not with his word. The problem is with you. Perhaps you're like Jacob, who had the dream we call Jacob's Ladder. He was in that place, and 
God was there and he had that dream and realized it. And he woke up and in Genesis 18 we read this. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. In the same way, when people today don't worship, it's not because God hasn't revealed himself in Scripture in a way that elicits that response from us. He has. It's because they have no true perception of the glory of God. Because if they truly perceived what God is like, they would do what every other person who encounters God does, and that is worship. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his current series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will bring you part nine next time. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.